Welcome everyone to another edition of the Scoop Rewind podcast presented by PPG. We delve back into the 2016-17 back-to-back Stanley Cup championships for the Pittsburgh Penguins. I'm joined as always by Paul Staggerwald, but special guest today is Rick Tockett. First of all, Tock, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, uh, miss you guys. I haven't seen you guys in a while. Uh, it's nice to rehash the, uh, the old Penguin days. Uh, the glory days. Uh, talk, obviously, part of three Stanley Cup championships with the team. Two as an assistant coach, one as a player. But we're going to focus on the assistant coachship. And, Talk, you were there at the start of that 2015-16 season. Obviously, it wasn't the way the team wanted to kind of get the season going. They really struggled, couldn't find their footing. What do you think was the reason why they kind of stumbled out the gate that year? Yeah, it wasn't like we were playing bad. Um, you know, we had, uh, you know, we're, you know, we had a new coaching staff. Um, you know, Mike Johnson really enjoyed learning under him. Really nice guy. Um, but I think really what turned everything around was, oh, there's a lot of different factors, a few different factors. One was uh, the, the youth. Like, uh, we started bringing uh, the youth into the lineup. Um, I think that, and obviously, uh, you know, the, the following year with Mike Sullivan on the board, I think those two things really had helped. Um, it kind of added a little juice. You could just see when the, the younger guys started to come filter in. You could just see the, the how Sid and Gino it invigorated them. It was almost like, okay, now I got to teach these guys. These guys are going to work hard for us. Now I want to teach these guys how to win. So it, it was almost like a rebirth for some guys on the team. Nikki, I got to ask you because you had worked with Mike Sullivan uh, in Tampa. The roles were reversed. You were the head coach, and he was the assistant, which is amazing. Um, he comes to the Penguins organization and working in Wilkes-Barre. Uh, first of all, did you know he was coming uh, prior to, you know, the announcement or maybe more than a, even a few days before? And when you found out that he got that gig, what, what did you think of him being in the Penguins organization at that time? Yeah, that summer, um, Bill Guerin, um, Fitzgerald, uh, Jason Botterill, Botsy, um, asked me if there's anybody I liked. And I, I mentioned Mike Sullivan, and they had him on a list. And uh, I reckon you know, I was part of the one of the guys that recommended him, but those guys already had a, a, a eye on the street with, a, you know, heartbeat on the, the street with him. Um, so when he got the job, and obviously, you know, what he did, you know, the, what, Wilkesbury was dominating. Or they like, I don't know, they were twenty four or something when he was there. So um, there was a little bit of history there, and Billy knew him a little bit, Tommy Fitzgerald. So um, and then um, and with Jimmy Rutherford and Botsy. So um, yeah, so I knew him, and I knew obviously know him from the Tampa days. Like you said, Staggy, he was assistant coach for me. Uh, tough time there. You know, it was a lot of uh, the ownership. We're in a good team. But the one thing, Sully, I remember, you know, he, he said, we got to come every day and coach these guys, regardless of the record, regardless of the obstacles that are presented in front of us. He said, we just got to keep coaching. And I thought that was great advice. So it, it just kind of, it was just good advice because it just made me come to Rick every day thinking that, hey, I had to keep coaching these guys. You can't be poor as we, and we're not a good team. We don't have this. We don't have that. It was just the, the Mike Sullen attitude, you know, the other we got was just move forward with it. So when he came in, I'm curious about this, to coach the Penguins, uh, I know you were frustrated at that point with how the things were going. As you said, the team wasn't playing badly. It just wasn't playing up to its potential, I would say. And, you know, there were pieces being added, too, by Jim yeah. Rutherford. So the team was evolving in any case. But what 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 changed uh, in terms of your role? And how did you feel about the the, the, the way Mike Sullivan was doing things right out of the gate? Very decisive. You got to remember, uh, Saggy and, and, and Sam, you guys know this, like you guys are you know, the stat guys. Like, I think he went 0 4 his first four games. Um, didn't unwa- there's no unwavering. Uh, you, you know, to, 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 to be named the interim head coach, to come to the, you know, 
coaching that type of talent and go 0 and 4. Um, didn't listen to the outside noise. He said, we got to play this certain style. We got to do this, we got to do that. And he never, very unwavering. You know, he didn't waver. Just kept on with the, the approach. Um, he, uh, something with me and, and, and Jock, a lot of autonomy. You know, he, the one thing he wanted uh, us to do is, you know, continue what we're doing, but uh, put little fires out that came. And all that. I, that's a big, I'm a big believer for assistant coaches, like try to get those little fires out before they get the head coach. I think that's the biggest thing, because if everything, the coach, the head coach has to deal with everything, that's a lot to deal with. And I think that Jock and myself, uh, Sergey Gotcha, when he came with us later, uh, at the time, Mike Bales, um, Sauce, the, the, the great video coach. I think we all kind of took a part in that because Sully gave us good, a lot of autonomy uh, when it came to that sort of stuff. Yeah, it's interesting that you said Sullivan uh, being unwavering because I remember when I uh, interviewed him and he was kind of preached that to the team to be unwavering. And I remember asking about the 0-4 start and he was trying to stay positive, trying to stay even keeled, even in like the post-game press conferences, really selling that message. The, then, they, as you said, uh, Staggy, Jim Rutherford started bringing in guys like Carl Hagelin and, you know, Trevor Daly, all these guys that kind of helped change up the guys from Wilkes-Barre. There's a couple games that really stood out to me during the, the stretch run of the regular season. And uh, talk. I don't know if you remember these. The one that I thought the team really turned the corner was New Year's Eve in Detroit. And uh, if you recall, the, the team was down 2 nothing after the first period, came back, tied it in the second period. Then we're down 3-2 going into the third came back and won the game, and it was their first win in over two and a half years, or their second win in over two and a half years, and they were down heading into the third period. So I thought that was one of the first turning points. Uh, and two others in March. One was the big one I thought it was against the New York Rangers when Hendrik Lundqvist flipped the net. That's, everyone remembers him flipping the net. But what happened after that was the Rangers actually scored to go up one nothing, and the Penguins scored three goals in a matter of three minutes and chased him. And, and I thought that kind of exercised some demons, but – it also, you could see the team kind of starting to come together. Were, was there any moments that really stood out to you during the regular season, either a game or a moment that made you kind of say, like, all right, they're, they're starting to get this. It's starting to come around. Well, I think for a team-wise, um, I think you're right. Uh, I remember that Detroit game, but just the way um, every guy approached practice in January and February, you could see the team started to win, started to believe in what we were preaching, and uh, that was big. But to me, and, and obviously uh, Malcolm and Crosby were huge, and Latang, all those guys. But I remember Sid was hurt in December. Things weren't going well, um, and I forget what game he came back from. The day he came back, I forget December, whatever the date. I remember that uh, till the end. We won the Stanley Cup. There was no better player in the league than him, and it was almost like that. Forty games, uh, he played a two hundred foot game. Um, Gino bought in. You know, the, you know, Latang was a, a beast back there. It just seemed like those guys, with the help of the, the Beninos and, and, and all those type of guys, uh, Hornquist, I mean, I can name key moments, and, and we can talk about that later. But I, I just felt that that was – it was almost like Sid saying, hey, enough's enough. Gino said, enough's enough. We have good players uh, – great players in this locker room. We should be winning. Let's go. We believe in the coaching staff, and we believe the way we practice and the way with the system. And then, uh, you know, uh, so I don't think it was one defining moment, but I do want to know when Sid came back from being hurt for that one or two, two games after a four-game losing streak when Mike uh, Sullivan took over. It was just, to me, it, it just, the, the arrow just kept going high. And I remember, Talk, uh, Sid was really struggling in the first half of that year. I never saw him go through a stretch like that. He was in a fog almost, and he wasn't sure what to do about it. It looked like he was, all, you know, at a loss. And meantime, Phil Kessel actually played really well early in that season, as I remember. Uh, he was actually scoring some big goals and doing a pretty good job. And I'm wondering uh, when the uh, 
Rick Tockett being the Phil Kessel whisperer uh, process really started. Was that early in that season or was it later when Mike Sullivan took over? Listen, you know, there's a lot of people in that room, a lot of egos. There's a lot of, um, you know, uh, dynamics. Uh, Sully had a full plate, um, you know, and I, I just had connected with Phil and, you know, instead of, you know, Sully had to deal with them all the time, you know, you know, every once in a while, Phil pop in the office, grab a coffee, whatever, talk. I try to explain things. You know, he was a, you know, he's got a good hockey IQ. You know, he, you know, he's, he complained every once in a while about something like all us players do. I used to do that, but I think he just needed somebody to listen. Um, and Sully had so much, you know, he had a, you know, developing a great relationship with Sid and Gino and all these guys. So it just kind of morphed into that. And, uh, you know, we used to, you know, Phil was just, he could, you know, Phil trusted me and, and, and I, I would try to relay some of the message. Sometimes he, he didn't agree with him at the end of the day. I mean, he was a big part of the Stanley uh, two Stanley Cups. He was uh, he was a, a big chunk of what, what we tried to do, and he scored some. You're right, he scored some big goals for us. You had know what a what a Stanley Cup champion looks like because you played for one for the Penguins in '92. Uh, did you feel uh, something special was developing there as you headed towards the playoffs? I saw some really as a, as the season went on, and then some, there were some really crucial games in March and April, and I just saw. Like what I loved about our team, whether it was double overtime or whether it was the first period, we played the system consistently. Like I try to explain to players, our, our young players say in Arizona, like just because of the moment, they still stuck with it. Like if, if there's a play there to the pocket, like a DD pocket, just because it's double overtime um, and the, the stakes are high, you can't be afraid to still stay with the sub to make that play. Like a Chris Letang would still make a play when most people just throw it off the glass. And if you can make those plays <laughs> under pressure, man, it demoralizes the other team because now you have no fear. Then you have to have no fear to win. And those guys had no fear when it came to winning. Um, what I felt those two years, especially. You talk about the run that you went, the Penguins won 14 of their last 16 games. And really the last game was in Philly, which was kind of a, didn't really mean anything. So really they won 14 of the last 15. And heading into it, you know, you talked about the injury to Sidney Crosby, but Evgeny Malkin got hurt in Columbus towards the end there, and that caused the coaching staff to kind of reconfigure the lines, and that's where the HBK, Hagelin, yeah, yeah. Bonino, Kessel line kind of came about. And I know um, Sully's talked a lot about trying to sell Phil in that three-line model, but that's where it kind of all really came together. What were the conversations like when you guys were putting that together, and how, uh, how obviously, we know how it played out, but... Yeah, um, yeah. It was kind of the decision-making to put those particular three guys together. Yeah, well, we felt the speed of Haggy to push the pace. Uh, Nick Benito, the very calculated, uh, you, know, uh, you know, would be on the right side of the puck. Great draw, man. Could make plays under pressure if he needed to be, you know, play safe if we needed him to. And then Phil was kind of the equalizer. You know, you let Phil do you know, what he does. You know, Phil, for his large stretches, you know, he, he might not be noticeable. And all of a sudden, he gets that puck. It's either that or he makes a play. He's a big strike, uh, big play type of guy. Um, so if you look at the personalities of each guy, it just worked out perfect. Um, I remember Washington, and uh, it, they had no answer for that line. They, you know, they had it. You know, if they if they loaded up and they tried to shut Crosby down or Malkin, they, had, you know, to me they had no no uh, no defense pair that could could shut that line. And if you watch, you know, Phil's uh, line uh, and Nick and uh, Haggy got the, the fifth and sixth defense in Washington. No dis disrespect to them. But I think that's what was the key, that uh, they couldn't match up their fifth and sixth against that line and, on a consistent basis. As you say, entering into the playoffs, though, you got the New York Rangers. And 
I know you weren't a part of the the team that was up three one then lost to the Rangers, but the, the Rangers did eliminate the Penguins in the previous two years. Was that almost an important psychological hurdle for the team to get that specific team, particularly even Henrik Lundqvist, who had really in a span of three games and over 12 periods gave up three goals total, then to get him and then the, the way that you guys were able to chase him twice really late in the games. Um, did, did the team need to kind of get over that hump um, psychologically? Yeah, I, I, as a coach, I didn't really I – didn't, we didn't divulge it. We didn't talk about it. And I didn't really feel too much of the Ranger, whatever, Hex or whatever. But um, I'm not going to get too much of it. There was some great scouting and there was some, some great strategy against Henry Lundqvist that we – we adapted, and um, the, he's a phenomenal goalie. But I felt that those two years uh, or three years, uh, you know, uh, we scored a lot of goals on him because of a couple of scouting and some uh, some things that uh, the staff and outside our staff, like our some of our scouts, had, had mentioned, and I think it helped us. So, uh, just goes to show you a little bit of scouting and a little bit of uh, you know system stuff can overcome some of those uh, you know those when teams have your number, and I think that was a key moment is uh, being able to do a couple of things against Henry Lundqvist that helped us. Amazing how in the playoffs you have these guys that ride in on white horses and save the day like Jeff Zatkoff did. Uh, and you had seen it. You know, you'd seen it before. I mean, it's, it's almost like, I don't, I don't know how to say this, but it's almost like you need those kind of moments to actually sort of build that whole mystique of winning the cup, if you know what I mean. Great point. And, I, and you know what? Being a guy that I've played every role, I love these type of guys. Uh, you know, I, I mentioned you mentioned Zakoff. I remember every day at practice, this guy would cheer guys on. He'd high five Flurry. You know, Murray when he was there, he's the third goalie. He was taking extra shots, and and we needed. Uh, I mean, at that crucial moment, all the work that he did, and the guy had a smile on his face. The moment was huge, and I remember him coming with a coffee, smiling. You know, the the, the day wasn't too big for him, uh, so I remember that. And I remember a guy like Ian Cole. He didn't dress that year for. I think it was 18 straight games or something. I remember. And uh, I was just watching game six against Nashville. And there was a three-minute stretch. I don't think there was a better defensive defenseman play the way he did against those penalty kills against the Nashville. Yeah, there was a five-on-three and a five-on-four for about three minutes. And he was a beast out there. And there's a guy three months earlier that didn't play for 18 straight games. And, and now he's, you know, a big part of the Colorado Avalanche. So, I have, a, I have a soft spot soft spot for those guys. Even the guys back in the day, McKaylix and Jock Collins. When I won the cup, when that we we need, you know, when we need, uh, Mike Needham. Those guys, uh, you know, some of the younger guys wouldn't know who they are nowadays. But those guys came up and gave us some minutes to to help us win cups. So I do have a soft spot for those type of guys. Well, some of those guys, the fourth line. I mean, Tom Kunackle, Eric yeah. Fair, Matt Collin. They had a terrific series against the New York Rangers. I'm sure there's those guys you. Uh, also have a soft spot for. Yeah, and uh, great guys in the locker room. You know, listen, it's it's tough. You know, sometimes you play in a great team. Sometimes you're not going to play much. You know, some nights you might get eight minutes. Some nights you might get 12. And they accepted their role. Do that if they sat there for five, six minutes and, and Sully called their number, um, they, they, what their job was, their task at hand was to do. And uh, they were not a weak link. They were a strong link. And you're only, you know, the, the old link, uh, they were a strong link for us. And I, and I just remember those guys coming out, uh, changing the momentum sometimes. You know, there would be sometimes when teams would make a, uh, a push, those guys go out there and they'd gain territory with a, either a big goal or a big shift and got the fans going. And then Sid and, and Gino would, would clean it up. I feel like, it, I mean, it's getting a little ahead, but I remember watching the San Jose game too that went to overtime. 
And you had the fourth line out there with less than a minute to go in a tie game in the Stanley Cup final. And I know a lot of coaches preach rolling four lines and evening the minutes, but you guys actually practiced what you preached. How much of a luxury was it to be able to roll those four lines, especially once you got into a series like you did with Washington? Well, that's the con that Sully had in those guys. You know, it's funny, Sam, you mentioned that, but I was, like I said, I was watching game, uh, game six, uh, 16 against Nashville. Uh, Patrick Horkus, who scored the, you know, the winning goal, didn't play a lot that game. Um, but who did he uh, after? The, who did he have out the last minute? Patrick Horkus, Cully, and uh, uh, Kunitz. Who uh, and Kunitz had to take a fourth line role. Remember, like you know, he started playing on the fourth line the last two, three months of the year. Um, and those guys were on the ice for us to win the game and also to to savor the game uh, when the game was on the line. So that just goes to show you the confidence when coaches have in players and players buy in. Yeah, Matt Collin played a ton. I think he played like 17 minutes in that game. <laughs> he was a beast. He was a beast in that game. Um, he was, uh, and I think I was mentioning this, uh, there was about six minutes left. He won a battle in the corner where it could have been dangerous when Nashville had possession on us. And uh, he won a battle, and he, uh, he got the puck out very safely and it allowed us to change. Crucial part of the game, uh, and I remember those little plays. That was, of course, the next year. But, uh, Sam, maybe we could just talk about the Washington Capitals series a little quicker here and just talk about, uh, you know, the role that Nick Bonino played uh, in that series and the knack that he had for scoring big goals in overtime in his career, going all the way back to college. Yeah, Nick, Nick first of all, Nick's a very underrated leader. I really enjoyed coaching that guy. Um, methodical, um, you know, he knew his role. Uh, some nights he'd play 11-12, some nights he'd play a little bit more, 17-18. Sully used him as a jack of all trades. You know, sometimes you get a power play, big penalty killing guy for it, block, block a lot of shots, block a lot of shots. But against Washington, he, like I said, he was the, the, the guy that they could not have an answer for because um, they were so worried about the big boys. You know, Nick kind of slipped in there, did his thing, and did some damage. So uh, that was something that uh, Washington had no answer for. Nick was a big part of that. Um, but I, I still remember Nick being a real good leader in the room very solid voice in our locker room. Did you get uh, much of a thing where maybe did you did you feel any moments during any of these series in 16 where you know your experiences having won the cup or just being who you are might have made an impact on Sully like like a moment where maybe Sully came to you and said man I'm having a tough time with this or that can you help me out here you know that kind of thing. Well I'll tell you what as a player you know, I, I, I was in uh, two finals with Flyers. I remember 1987, game seven against Edmonton. Um, big, huge game. And I kind of changed my routine. I remember instead, of, I went to bed real early. And I remember I, I ordered room service instead of going to dinner with the guys. I, I, I did everything. And, and, I, and the moment came big. And I got and I didn't play a good game, game seven against uh, Edmonton. That was, that was my nerves. And I remember I learned from a 92 playing uh, Chicago, that series. I, I had a really good series against Chicago because, I just did what I did. I did in October. I mean, I know the moment's big, but I, I didn't switch. And I, it's the same thing, I think. Not so much as Sully learned from me, but as a staff, because of the bigger the game, we didn't overcoach. We didn't show more video. We didn't, oh, let's talk to players more. I think we just stayed with what the recipe was, what we did. And I think the players would appreciate that because, you know, it's like I, I always tell, I always tell like good coaches are, it's like you're in a plane. There's turbulence on a plane. The cockpit doors open. You see, if you see a, the pilot nervous, biting his nails, <laughs> right? If you see the guy nice and calm, reading the paper during the turbulence, <laughs> you do, right? So that's the way I, you try to coach. And I think that's what Sully was really good at, trying to 
just be the same guy, whether it's if it's a turbulence or, or it's smooth, clear, uh, clear air going through uh, the blue sky. <laughs> You know? Well, there's a lot of turbulence on a lot of flights that I remember. I was in the last seat of the plane talk. I didn't have the benefit of seeing that pilot sitting there with the newspaper. I was back there. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, speaking of turbulence, I don't think it gets much more turbulent than when you're trying to close out a series against the President's Trophy winning team, the Washington Capitals, and you've got a one-goal lead and you take back-to-back-to-back to back to back delay of game penalties. <laughs> So, A, I mean, I know you've never seen that before, but how crazy was that kind of on the bench? And then, amazingly, the Penguins only give up one goal, so it forces an overtime. So, B, you spoke of the turbulence. What was kind of the message in the locker room from the coaching staff to the players after – because you you're also up 3 nothing in the game, and they tie it late to force yeah, overtime. Yeah. So, what was kind of the message in the room, and what was also the feeling like on the bench when that was all going down? Yeah, great question, because during that time when you're up 3 nothing, and all of a sudden it's like you're coming back, and then, you know, the penalty after penalty after penalty. Um, didn't see a lot of panic. Uh, there wasn't a lot of, you know, what's going on here? Stop flipping pucks out, yelling at each other. There was like, okay, I remember I, I thought it was Jock or, or Sully grabbed the whiteboard. We were talking. I, I remember talking to a couple of players, hey, this, this, make sure that we have fresh guys. We were, we were, we were all, not just the coaches were coaching, the players were coaching um, during that tough moment. And then, and then when they tied it up, and we went overtime. We basically said, "Hey, we're not going to change um, just because uh, you know what happened." I'm sure the fans are like, "I'm, I'm sure the fans are in the crowd like, what just happened here?" But we uh, we we just stayed steady, and uh, I think that's that's learning to win and, and learning to win under pressure. You talked about how good the Benino line, the HBK line, was against Washington. So only fitting that it is Nick Benino that scores the overtime winner that eliminates the Capitals. Uh, what was the feeling like on the bench when you got that goal um, to know that you're moving on and, and, and against? I mean, I don't want to – obviously, the Penguins are the best team because they won the Stanley Cup, but Washington had to be number two, in my opinion, anyway. Yeah, huge rivals, uh, a very heavy team, Washington. It was uh, every – it was a tough to grab every inch. There was – you know, there was the, the Ovechkin said thing. There was a lot of storylines. Um, but, obviously, when Nick scored that goal, just the relief, uh, just all the hard work, um, and just, you know, what we – the obstacles, we, that game we had to go through to win that. And, um, yeah, it's just – it's a great feeling, but I got to tell you, after we were celebrating, but in our own way, um, but there was there was a business like to that team after we won. Even guys were taking a shower. It wasn't like okay, you know, guys were getting something to eat. It wasn't a lot of still hugging. It was like okay, uh, day off tomorrow. What's going on? Uh, you know, there was it was more like what's the schedule going up uh, for the next few days? Guys were like had business like uh, attitude. Uh, wasn't so much celebrating anymore. Yeah, and when it was all over, uh, everybody heard all across town, but that's great stuff. What a fun time for the fans and the atmosphere, right? Uh, and then you got to go up against Tampa Bay. What I thought was interesting in that series, and I know Sam probably wants to get into some of the real details, but one of the things that stands out to me is Ben Bishop having to be carried off the ice on a stretcher, which is rare for a player to do. Like normally they'll do anything to prevent that from happening. But he went off on a stretcher. And what I remember, and I don't want to get too far ahead, but when the series was over, the voice of the Tampa Bay Lightning is a good friend of mine, Rick Peckham, and he said, you know, when we lost Bish, that was a real problem. And, I, and I'm thinking, really? Because I thought Vasilevsky was awesome in that series and made it actually extended it. You know, maybe even that's all that's how good he was. Uh, but in any event, uh, you know, everybody thinks the number one goalie goes out and it's going to be easy, but it wasn't easy, and uh, it was a heck of a series. Yeah, it was a great series. <laughs> Than the Washington series, it wasn't as heavy. It was a more of a, 
it was more of an adjustment. Tampa played a, a very fast game. They stretched their wingers a lot. Where Washington cycle team, hard net, go to the net, full pucks net. Where this was a very uh, a little more finesse. Um, if you if you if you didn't have numbers, you know they could score up and rush with numbers. I, we actually adjusted with uh, halfway through the series. I thought um, we we as players and coaching really did a great job adjusting to what they were doing. Um, and um, I think it helped us win the series. And obviously, challenging that offside, uh, the great Andy Saucier, you know, uh, making that call. I mean, it might be a little bit different making those calls now because of the, getting the penalty, but still to make that call and, and give us, uh, you know, disallow that goal just gave us new life again. And uh, I thought we really played well, dominated after that. Yeah, you won that game five, two, game six. Um... That's probably where Vasilevsky, you know, had some issues in the series. But other than that, he was he was really good. But, uh, um, you know, you, you talked about adjustments. I always thought in that Tampa series that I thought they sat back a little bit. They almost uh, – and you talked about stretching the ice, but also felt like they were looking to counter all the time. Like they were sitting back and letting the Penguins try to make mistakes. They're kind of like their bad approach as opposed to really attacking sort of the way the Capitals do or whatever. So in that respect, I kind of felt like you guys outcoached their coach. Because you, you know, he didn't change. He he kept that that pattern of trying to score off the rush based on turnovers, and you guys adjusted. Is that right, or am I? Yeah, no. Parts of it I do. You know, they, they uh, I think they were trying to attack us. Um, but the one thing with the one thing with our team, we're very disciplined. I mean, we did. We we're a team that really like we're underrated defensively. We we played a def- like. As much as you want to say we had all, the, all these guys, you know, the Kraj and Malkin and Latangs, um, we were a very good defensively t- uh, uh, um, system team. And I think we didn't give Tampa a lot of room. And I think that's why Tampa sat back. They were scared of our counterattack. I'm not sure, but I do know that we had numbers. Anytime they had some of their, their you know, their, their great players have the pucks, uh, there was support everywhere. And the one good thing about that team we did well is that we anticipated very well off our system. Uh, everybody knew where to go once we we had the puck, and I think that was a big key too. You mentioned the turbulence of the series, so it's two two after four games. The team goes back to Mark Andre Fleury for Game Five, gives kind of a, a little spark early, but then you end up falling in overtime. Goes back to Matt Murray in Game Six, and and not to say things were a little shaky, but obviously the the confidence was a little bit uh, down. So the opening two minutes, they do get the goal that puts Tampa up one nothing. And I remember the, just, just the crowd, how intense they were, how loud they were. And in that little video room, Andy's with his little all his cameras, and he calls in. He called you, correct? Like he called you to say yeah, we should yeah. challenge this. Yes. So can you yes. walk us through kind of how that all came about? Well, yeah, it's a, the, the, it was a you know it was a crucial part because the crowd was they they were kind of dictating a little bit of a play, um, and it. I remember he saw us yelling in my ear, hey, listen, it, you got to challenge it. And I just, and, and Sully's very calm. And I, I got to give Sully a little credit. And I just looked at Sully and said, uh, let's challenge it. Uh, Sauce th- uh, thinks it's offside. And he went and he called the ref over very calmly. And when we, when uh, Sauce made the call, we won the call. Um, I'm pretty sure from then on, we were the, the better team. Um, so it was just that instance. Uh, it's almost like a little bit of a wake-up call, you know, uh, for our team. And then I thought we dominated after that. So, it yeah. certainly, yeah, it certainly brought the crowd down. And one of the things too, I remember um, seeing video of Sullivan on the bench, and as the calls, as they're reviewing the call, I remember him walking up and down and saying, "Win or lose, we play, just play. Win or lose, just play." So it seemed like the message was there. 
But um, actually, we spoke with Tom Kunackle and Eric Fair and a couple other guys. They did say that, you know, they, they were almost like the deer in headlights. And then once that call happened, it was kind of like, oh, okay. They relaxed a little bit and then played more to their game. So, uh, and then obviously the comeback and win, and then you head to a game seven, which do or die, anything can go. And all the stars in this, then Steven Stamkos comes out of, you know, basically a couple months not playing to play. You know, you're thinking he's going to be this big hero. You've got Malkin, Crosby, Kucherov, all these big names. And the 24-year-old kid named Brian Rust ends up being your hero. Is that just kind of the way game sevens go? I mean, the storyline that that ended up playing out to be? Yeah, it, uh, there are stories. There's so many, and, and you guys are uh, historians when it comes to that. Guys scoring those big goals, you know. Uh, Brian Rust, you know, you know, in and out of the lineup uh, throughout the year, playing on the top line sometimes, on the fourth line or whatever. Um, and he was, you know, it was probably his finest game as a Penguin. Uh, he was all over the ice. Um, he was pushing the pace. And uh, just goes to show you, you know, regardless of your position in January as a player, if you stick with it, you can be a hero. And he was the hero for the Penguins. And, and people will always remember Brian Russ's name because of that. So what were your thoughts going in against San Jose? Uh, obviously a bigger team, one that likes to play more of the ground game, if you will, dirty in the corners, cycling, strength, which is pretty much the counter what you guys are with the speed and forcing the play and stuff. So uh, how do you go? What was the, I guess, what was the strategy going against a team that wants to play a little heavier game? Yeah, there was a couple of things they'd love to do. I mean, one of the best teams at uh, finding uh, the slot, uh, a shot from the point where they have those high tip plates. Uh, Excellent. Uh, they used to spread the puck a lot. Uh, it was an automatic uh, reset right to the other defenseman, then they'd activate their D. Um, they had a, you know, they had a bigger team, so they, they held on to pucks in the corners. So they did that. So, so we adjusted our game to that. Uh, uh, you know, I won't I bore the fans in details what we did, but we did a couple of things that really helped turn the series around for us. Um, I don't think there are as a series one. They couldn't match our speed. I think our speed took over, um, and I think uh, obviously, you know, every guy on our team contributed at one moment. Um, we the depth of our team basically won that series. Yeah, especially I look at some of the goals were scored by guys like Ian Cole and Brian Doolin and Ben Lovejoy, Brian Russ, Connor Sheary, an overtime goal. You you were getting those those contributions from throughout the lineup. And I, I, in game two, there was a play where. Tom Kunackle actually outskated Brent Burns to a puck that created a chance for Matt Collin. I remember watching that and just whatever line the Penguins threw out, just San Jose had no answer for them. Yeah, I marvel. And that's the thing, you know, you look at the great Brett Burns and you look at guys like Latang and those guys, like they play heavy minutes. And, you know, if you keep pushing the pace, even on high level guys, and I remember Tommy pushed the pace on him. I remember he just had a burst of speed and who knows, Brett Burns was playing a ton and maybe. You know, he was a little tired during that shift, and we got a fresh guy out there, and Tommy Kunakwo was ready for the challenge. And you're right, that's a big play um, on a high-level guy. So it just goes to show you that the depth of that, those certain plays will help you in the long run. I can't think of the series without Game 5. I don't know if you, uh, Stag, have you ever seen anything like that with 25-some-odd thousand people outside of the arena shutting down the street? Um, Talk. What was what was kind of the thought of you? I don't know if you got delayed in traffic. I know some of the guys got delayed getting to the arena and, and all that stuff. I don't know what that atmosphere was like or what you felt kind of with that, uh, with all the fans gathering the way it kind of led into that game. Yeah, before you answer that, talk. I just, uh, before you answer that, as you say, I went to the game as like a fan. I remember 
I wasn't sure about driving down because I knew it was going to be crazy down there. So I took the T. I took the uh, mass, you know, mass transit. And uh, so I went down. And when I got down there and saw that scene, it was just unbelievable. It was so cool. And it was such a moment. And you were hoping so much that the Penguins would win the cup on home ice for the first time. I think we all were. I mean, I don't know if maybe a lot of people were expecting it. I wasn't expecting it because I know how things can go. But I was certainly hoping for it. Yeah, uh, yeah, like I remember, I had to do something for NBC, uh, a quick thing outside, and I went outside there, and it was, I, I you know, <laughs> I, I get the rink fairly early, so but I, I saw a thousand people, even though I got there, I think about four o'clock, three, four hours before the game. Um, but when I went outside around six o'clock to do some quick hit on the for media, um, it was, it was just incredible, and it just listen. The, the two, like I, you know, then I know they're big rivals. I, I, my two favorite places to play Philadelphia and Pittsburgh, but to be able to to witness the three cups and 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 live, you know, fairly about twelve years in Pittsburgh, the 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 fan base uh, from you know the, the people that I remember going to my local Starbucks and talking hockey with them, or just around the streets, and those are the people outside. I remember seeing some people that you know, like, hey, I, I know that guy who was you know was at the Giant Eagle the other day. Like those are the guys that. Uh, in these moments, uh, you, you, you really appreciate—they really you appreciate for winning for those type of people. So great, great community, uh, especially in that game. All those people outside—I mean, it was—it was—it was unbelievable. I'm gonna give you a little uh, flashback to to your career as a player with Philadelphia. Talk. I happened to be in the building that night for Game Six when you guys beat the Edmonton Oilers and forced a seventh game uh, back in Edmonton. And I can remember the looks on the faces of the Oilers that night in the post-game interviews. They, they couldn't believe that they had to go home and play another game. And to their credit, they figured out a way to win that series. But it was Ronnie Hextall who played an unbelievable game. And in this game, Martin Jones stopped 44 of 46 shots. He basically stole the game for the Sharks, forcing you guys to have to fly all the way back to California. What was that like? Yeah. Um, everything at the kitchen sink at him. Um, like I said, Saggy, um, there wasn't devastation. It was uh, okay. Like, uh, hey, we'll see you guys more on the plane. You know, guys had smiles on the face on the plane. I mean, Patrick, I, I love seeing Patrick Hornquist. Uh, hey, good morning, coaches. And he's walking on. And, you know, t 13 hours late, you know, we just lost a dev devastating game. That's the attitude of a winner, you know. Uh, and uh, the business, like, of going to San Jose, hey, we had a four-hour flight. Get your food. Get your nutrition in. Get some sleep. Let's 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 go at it again. So um, that's the sort of attitude of those type of players uh, make make coaches' jobs easier when you have those type of players. And then when you get into Game Six, one of the things that really stood out to me, or still to this day jumps out to me, was you've got the two-one lead. You're in the third period. Now San Jose, their entire championship aspirations comes down to 20 minutes. Comes down to a third period. In that entire third period. They had two shots on goal. So their entire season's on the line, and all they could get was two shots on goal. And, and I know you guys had shorter shifts and were really, you know, trying to keep the bench fresh and rolling the four lines. But what was it that you guys did so well in that third period? I mean, you're talking about a team that's a really good team, obviously the best team in the West, um, and, and their entire season's on the line, and all they could muster was two shots. I think that spoke more to the Penguins' dominance than anything it's really had to say about San Jose. Yeah, I think as a coach, when you – sit behind a bench and you see times in, in your coaching career and you see when you look at that's a well-oiled machine that period when you asked mike sullivan it was probably the easiest way to coach and i was assistant coach so obviously the pressure was on more on mike with the line uh the lines and stuff but um 
to see, it was almost like, well, I, I want to say it was easy, but it was just almost, okay, calling a lineup, you were never concerned about anything because the way the guys were playing. I mean, we reloaded and the support, uh, the short shifts, the system, the, the, the great plays when it would need to be. That was a well, that 20 minutes was the best I've seen the team ever play system-wise. And um, nobody was bigger than, bigger than the team uh, during those 20 minutes. I have a picture uh, that I took off of the, uh, um, I, I think it was off a screen uh, of when Sid and Latang came together after that goal was scored, the, the clinching goal by Chris Latang, And the looks on their faces of intensity and it's just a special photograph. I don't know if you want to know the one I'm talking about, but uh, you could just see how psyched they were to get that goal and that they kind of knew what that really represented at that moment. You know? Yeah, you know, that's, that's, it's a moment uh, saying that lives in your, in your mind because when I look at, if you look at those photos and you look at when a player sees that, the, the euphoria of winning or that goal or that chance to win, um, it's all the, you know, it's all the shots, you know, the practice of staying out for practice. It's all the, you know, the, the arguments that coaches and players have <laughs> this season. It's all the, the arguments players have. It's guys fighting in practice. It's, it's, you have to go through these things to get to those moments. And, you know, for, that's the lesson you try to tell players that never won it. You got, it's, you know, you have to go through those things. And I think that's what Sid and, and uh, Chris, when they looked at each other in that moment, it's like all that hard work has paid off to this point. We speak of moments, uh, whenever Hornquist, and you pointed him out a couple of times, when he gets the empty netter, there's still a minute or so left to play. Is there, on the bench, are you exhaling at that point? Or are you even more tense because you still have a full minute to play despite how much of a well-oiled machine it was? But what was the final minute like on the bench coaching? And then when it came to an end, what was the feeling on the bench there, if you can even describe it? Sam, I don't think not the, the Nashville, when we scored the – when Haggy scored with 11 seconds left, we still were on the bench. Hey, hang on a second. <laughs> I don't think you ever relax. Uh, but like I said, uh, yeah, I mean, obviously there's that quick burst of, oh, my God. But then you're back to business again. So um, we just wanted to make sure everybody, you know, who knew was up. And, you know, we were talking, make sure we have a third man up high. Like just all the, the, the reinforce the stuff that the players already know. So um, but you're still you're still you're still dangerous. Uh, with a minute left, even though you're up two goals. So when the clock is zero, what's going through your mind? Are you thinking, reflecting back on how far this team has come and how much they've accomplished? Or, or what, what are you thinking, maybe even personally, for your own career? Well, I, I just think of, you know, where, you know, I, I, listen, you do that reflection. You know, like I was out of the game for a while. Uh, it wasn't for Mario Lemieux getting me back into coaching. Like I reflect about those things, you know, the people that helped me. And uh, now I went back to back as assistant coach to a city where I won as a player, um, being able to coach and be part of that organization and, you know, uh, the way they ran things, it, you know, you reflect on all that sort of stuff. Sure. Uh, it's a quick you know, snapshot in your head. And uh, those moments still come back today. Like, you know, like I said, I was telling Staggy the other when I was on the phone with him, I watched game six in Nashville the other day just because of a project. I should probably do that more often, but I was getting goosebumps uh, watching, uh, you know, that, that third period and, and, uh, and reliving it in my mind. You know, it's a serendipitous. You mentioned Mario, you know, bringing you back. Uh, normally, you know, the GM hires the coach and the coach hires the assistants and there's this chain of command that takes place. But 
you were plugged in there, you know, basically by the owner to work with an assistant coach you'd never worked with, but then you end up working with Mike Sullivan. So it was almost like it was meant to be. And, uh, and you have a chance to, to go and do it again in, in a second consecutive season. You talked about game six and, uh, you know, what, what, what stands out to me about that team in 2017 was that the other the teams in the league had kind of picked up on what you guys had done the previous year. They were getting they had more speed. They were using defensemen more mobile back there. So they took away a lot of the stuff you guys had done the previous year. It wasn't a big surprise anymore. You kind of caught the league off guard in 16. In 17, it looked like you were more of a defensive team, if you will. Like uh, you, you were more opportunistic. You know, you had Nick Benino leading the league forwards and block shots and he was a, a warrior out there but I mean what I think of is the Penguins kind of holding the fort and and then striking you know and that, that was kind of your identity your identity changed a little bit just from year to year uh and it was it was just as strong an identity but it was definitely different in my day yeah it, it, you can't change or, or play that way if, if the players don't embrace it your leadership group but our leadership was very strong they enjoyed playing that suffocating style I mean our defense, uh, you know, we had a lot of injuries and, you know, we had some guys that came from nowhere. You know, Justin Schultz came from Edmonton and, you know, he wasn't even playing. You know, uh, Ian Cole was a seventh defenseman in, in St. Louis. Uh, you know, only amount of young player. There was injuries to Latang and, you know, you go down the list of guys, Ron Hainsey, we acquired him. So the defenseman uh, played a certain style um, and I'm, I'm watching these guys play and it's like, man, these guys could defend. You know, you might take them individually and say, yeah, he's a good defenseman, but the way they played together, I, I thought they played uh, as well as you can as a group. Um, and Sid and Gino and, and Benino and Cullen, you know, the, you know, you go down the list. Phil Kessel, I was watching him in game six. I mean, he was back-checking more than I've ever seen him check. So you, <laughs> there's times there you just watch the way guys embrace the way we play. We didn't have to sell them on it. They sold us on it because that's the way they wanted to play. I remember talking to um, Justin Schultz. You mentioned Schultz. I remember talking to him after winning in Nashville and asking, uh, I said, which one felt better? And he said the 17 one, because 16, it felt like they just kind of blew through everybody. But 17 was such a grind and they really had to like dig deep and just find that extra gear. And as you said, talk, they did it all without Crystal Tang too in that 17. They lost Nick Benino halfway through. I mean, there were some hard injuries that really hit this team. And yet somehow, some way they still managed to get the job done. Yeah, I don't know if people understand, like, so uh, on an off day or even a game day, most, mostly off day, they'll have two rooms, they'll have a, like a meal room, and beside they'll have this big ballroom, and they'll have, like, all the medical staff, like, they have uh, massage guys, they got, you know, chiropractic, so it's obviously maintenance on your body, so I remember, you know, I'd be, you know, like, sure, I'd go for, a, you know, a, the executive workout, I'd go to get a meal, and I, I remember I'd peek in that room, and I'd look at Patrick Hornquist with eight bags of ice on him, or you know, uh, you know, somebody working on Gino's back, um, you know, or Matt Cullen getting worked on. Like, just you could, you could, yeah, they had the playoff beards, and just you could see the the stress of this of your body being put in these 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 hard moments, and how these guys would, you know, it's almost like you know, it's like recharging your battery. Guy, you know, the medical staff was great, and then get it back out there. Um, there's a lot of bumps and bruises to win this cup, and those guys. You know, those, a lot of guys overcame a lot of different bumps and bruises to win. Tell me that story talk about when you went in and you kind of try to keep things loose. I think it was my game seven of the Washington series. Oh, uh, before the game, tell that story. That's a great story. Well, yeah, it's game seven, and uh, it's an hour, hour and a half before the game, and uh, you know, guys are up in, uh, in, in uh, 
the the MCI center, I guess. So we're watching. We were we were in game center, Washington. You guys were doing sticks. It was kind of, you know, it wasn't quiet because you know it's a little bit of seriousness. And Phil, Phil Kessel had the you know the big beard, and you know he's walking <laughs> out there, you know, the way Phil does. And guys are stretching. Phil's not stretching. He's got a coffee in his hand, and he he looks at me, and there's a chin up bar right in the in the middle of the in the hallway there, and he goes, uh, "I bet you you can't do." 10 chin-ups. I go, I'll bet you I could do 15. He goes, how much? He goes, he goes, Phil goes, I'll bet you hundred. I said, make it 300. So I, and I had a suit on. So I remember uh, he called all the guys over. So about 10 or 15 guys come over and they go, Hey, watch this talk. Thinks he's, he's, he's an old goat. He can't, you know, he can't play anymore. But, you know, he's the typical Phil, you know, giving it to me. And I just jumped up there and I did, I remember just doing 15, 16 and all the guys were cheering. And just like Phil, he put his coffee down, went in the other room, come out, give me three hundred dollars. <laughs> I put it in my pocket, and this is the best. I go back to the coach's room, and Sully goes, uh, "Where'd you go?" Uh, I said, "I stayed three hundred bucks." And uh, I told the guys the coach's story. They all laughed. I mean, that's the sort of stuff that you got to do. Like, it's a big moment, but that's where Phil knew that he wanted to loosen the guys up and kind of rip me at the same time. What a game. What a game that was. Flower, unbelievable. That series, uh, you know, it took so many different guys. I mean, it was once again a total team effort. Both goalies, uh, amazing what Flower did in that series and how he closed it out to, to win that series. Well. Yeah, so I would say uh, the, the 30 something, whatever, how many years I've been in the NHL as a coach or a player, my favorite guy to coach, uh, unfortunately, I didn't be able to play with it, is, and obviously I'm not a goalie coach, but just to be part of it is Mark Honor Fleury. And, uh, not a better human being. That first period, he was superhuman. We came after the first. I mean, it could have been three nothing, um, and it was almost like he. We all walked in. It's like nobody even got mad. It was just like we just looked at Flurry what he did. And if you remember from after the first period on, we were the better. We we dominated after that. And Flower just basically you know put it upon him shoulder to keep us in the game. And uh, what a performance by the Flower. I feel like the two biggest things that stand out in my mind when I think of the 17 run are Marc-Andre Fleury coming in game one when Matt Murray gets injured, really in warmups. I mean, he goes out for warmups, gets hurt, and next thing you know, Fleury's starting game one against Columbus. And all, I remember all of us in the press box like, what's going on? <laughs> but, uh, but, but against Columbus, I mean, he was seeing 30, 40 sometimes shots in that series, does it again against Washington. And then, of course, against Ottawa, everyone remembers the game seven double overtime with uh, Chris Kunitz, who hadn't scored, I think, since February. And he scores in the first period of that Game 7. Then he ends it with a double overtime goal. What was the feeling on the bench during that entire Game 7? Because, again, it's another do-or-die situation. But once you get to overtime, it doesn't matter how much better you could be playing than the other team. One bad bounce, one unlucky thing goes against you, you could lose this whole series. Yeah, I felt like I thought that game we were, we were the better team. Again, we just couldn't score. And it was uh, – we stuck with it. and. Um, it just goes to show you, like a guy like Chris Kunitz, who for years been on a top line, had to take a, a fourth line role, uh, sometimes you know playing eight, sometimes ten minutes a night. And and I remember Sully put him uh, with Sid. He felt he felt that hey, I'm going to give a uh, Sid some juice here with uh, Kunitz had some legs, and uh, lo and behold, that's a huge goal. I mean, hey, listen, I don't care how better you play some games. Sometimes you lose a game. You know, like I remember in '93, you know, when I lost, uh, we lost to the Islanders. We gave, we were all over Game Seven, but the Islanders found a way to win. It's no different in Ottawa. You know, a, a goal here or there, uh, they could have they, they moved on. But uh, for Kunitz to score that goal and accept the role that he did, uh, it was big for our team. But I remember the adjustment you made in that series, uh, 
talk was uh, he, Sully put kind of a grinder on every line. Uh, he, he moved Kunitz up to play with Sid at times, and uh, I think the, the Senators were maybe playing a physical brand of hockey, and I think he felt like he needed to add some, some grit on each line. He kind of moved things around to create that dynamic. Am I right on that? That's what I remember. Great point. I remember the, the whistle in their pocket that series. There was a, there was a, which was fine. I mean, it didn't bother me, but um, it kind of changed a little bit. The rest were letting everybody play. So I think Sully made the adjust because of that. Um, we wanted a north-south guy that could hold a puck in a corner that would go to the net, cause some issues, cause some problems, and it, it obviously it worked out for us. So, talk. We'll, we'll wrap up here, but uh, I want to ask you, what is your biggest memory, your takeaway from the series against Nashville? Like, what, when you look back on that entire six-game series, what's the one thing that stands out to you? Um, for me, uh, I'd have to say the, the, the way that I didn't like the way we played early in the series. Um, and it was almost like a light bulb hit our team and we started to play the penguin hockey again. So it wasn't exact minute, but I could just tell the temperament of the guys, they weren't happy the way we were playing, even though, you know, uh, I think we we're up to nothing. This year. Like we weren't satisfied. And then the national started coming back in the series. You can see there was a little bit of, Hey, we got to get back to penguin hockey. So I think those were the, I just, it wasn't even a coaching mode. It was more of the, the players decided themselves, Hey, not good enough. Even though we won those two games, it was like, Hey, we got to get back to playing our, our, our style. And in the middle of that, uh, in the middle of that Senator series, you switched back to Matt Murray and he was phenomenal in that series against Nashville. Really good. Wasn't giving up anything. And Pecorino was having issues when he played in Pittsburgh. He was better at home, but not so good on the road. But uh, just to kind of, take you through that Nashville series to close it out. Um, you know, obviously it's late in the summer. <laughs> it's a grind. I can remember being down in Nashville. It's hot down there and, and uh, boys just hung in there and, and uh, you know, two straight years of those long playoff runs, got to take it out of you. I mean, it's just a, what a, what a difficult task to win back to back Stanley cups. And, and you were part of a team that had done it in 92, but just think about that whole seek that whole, scenario of having to win the cup two years in a row like that you know yeah well it's about it's it's over two months of doing the same thing you know you, it's it's a uh, travel it's uh game days it's a uh, recovery and it, it, uh, it the mental like people think about physical part the mental toughness on these guys that's what it's all about i'm a big mental toughness guy uh more than ever um being able to just stick with what you're doing like I, I, I look at all the dynasties, all the great players. If you ever ask them, the Kobe Bryant's, the Tom Brady's, all these guys, um, you know, the great Steeler teams, they were just, they just did the, they did under pressure. They always did the same thing. They never wavered. Um, and that's hard to do because it's easy to get in your mind. Hey man, I can't wait for the summer and distractions get in your head. The good players, the great to the great players, the great teams don't let distractions get in your head. All right. And we'll, uh, we'll wrap it there. So we want to extend a big thank you, obviously, to Rick Taga for joining us on the program again today. As always, Paul Staggerwald, myself, Sam Kassan. Also want to thank Ryan Jorgen and Mike Davenport for their help and assistance with this. This has been another edition of the Scoop Podcast Rewind, where we look back at the 2016-17 Stanley Cup Championship presented by PPG. As again, for the, the company again, we'll catch you next time.